your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. Well, welcome to the last edition of Work with Marty Nemco. It's been a privilege to be doing this for 30 years. They'll be replacing the show with the KELW Audio Academy uh, shows. Um, But I will try to make the most of this hour uh, for you. I've assembled what I believe are my most uh, helpful career tips, whether you are, some of them are for people who are unemployed, some who are for people who are well-employed, non-profit, for-profit, self-employed. Hopefully in that potpourri, there will be something of value for you. And maybe even as some of the listeners to the show, they say they have no particular interest in doing anything career-wise, but they, they find the show interesting. So I will try to to please as many of you as I can in this uh, in this exit show, at least my exit show on KELW. Hopefully there are other pastures awaiting, and there are a couple of things in the fire which I'm excited about, but uh, it ain't done until it's done. So, okay, I want to start right away with what I consider my very favorite career tips. So um, I'm going to start with the area, first of all, of choosing a career. And I, my favorite trips are very often the contrarian ones. They're not the standard ones. Uh, because the same old, same old advice, like, go network. You know, you've heard that until, you know, your face is blue, you're blue in the face. So um, it's a waste of your time for you here to hear that yet again. So with regard, regarding choosing a career, it can be simpler than one might think. After I've had 5,700 career counseling clients and tried a variety of (laughs) complicated approaches, simple approaches, I generally consider the following simple approach to be wisest for most people. Choose a career that simply emphasizes what I call your core ability, whether that's you're a word person or a people person or a data person or an entrepreneurial type, and for which you have an in whether it's a family connection, previous experience or expertise, or even just what you're focused on in school. You see, people's happiness in a career depends far more on how well you vetted an individual job opening and whether you've adapted it to emphasize your strengths, like a suit of clothes. It's not going to look that great off the rack. You've got to tailor it. You've got to accessorize it. As long as you've done that and adapted it, not just to emphasize your strengths, but skirt your weaknesses that's much more important than fine-tuning what's the exact right career because for 98% of people, there is no one exact right career. Yeah, if you're more of a word person than a people person or a hands-on person, pick something that uses that. But if you try to narrow more than that, you actually increase your chances of having sat on the sidelines too long, waiting for some perfect fit, ostensibly perfect fit. Now, there is a a very authoritative government book called the Occupational Outlook Handbook that profiles about 250 careers. They're long. They're very factual, uh, but definitely authoritative. And if you're interested in a more subjective, briefer look, uh, my book, Careers for Dummies, profiles 350 careers that are arranged by word careers, people careers, self-employment opportunities, and so forth. So scanning simply either one or both of those books... And by the way, the Occupational Outlook Handbook is available free online. Just Google Occupational Outlook Handbook. You don't have to pay a penny for it. Scanning books like that, one or just one or both, 
can very quickly enable you to review hundreds of careers and narrow into a good fit. So that's my very favorite career tip for those people who are choosing a career. Now I'll turn to landing a good job. One size does not fit all. Unless you, I mean, let's say you do have a strong network and you've got, you know, they're well-connected people and they like you well enough to go to the mat for you, great. Then networking will be your best tool for landing a job. But if your network is, let's say, meager, then focus on doing a great job on your LinkedIn profile and your resume and in answering ads. And what does that look like? Of course, it's a customized resume. It's a customized cover letter. And here is the perhaps under-the-radar trick include a piece of what I call collateral material, that's additional material, for example, a white paper. A white paper is just like a term paper you did in school, a short one, maybe two, three pages, that you write to demonstrate your expertise in the job you're applying for. That can be particularly helpful for people who are career changers because you can't point to your experience on your resume and LinkedIn profile. So a way to demonstrate you have current competence is to write a two or three page paper, for example, seven keys to being a uh, an effective occupational therapist in 2020. Or if you're in a more sales or it's nonprofit equivalent fundraising role, you might say seven keys to effective sales or effective fundraising in the year 2020. Or even more narrow, because sales is very broad. Let's say you're interested in selling um, medical devices, seven keys to effectively selling medical devices in 2020. Okay. Now, continuing on my list of favorite career trips, I'm moving now to negotiating compensation. This is important. The battle is often won and lost before the actual negotiation. Use people you know, databases like Glassdoor, Payscale, Salary.com. Learn what you approximate. You can't get it exact, but your approximate fair market value is. And then be soft on the employer harder on the numbers. That enables you to develop the rapport needed to get that person to be flexible, but you don't want to just give away the store too easily on the numbers. And another sub-tip that's under the radar is focus on the non-cash, non-taxable items. Right? If, the, if for example, you, know, you want a training budget, in, 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 uh, that is not taxable, and yet it benefits you, and it benefits the employer. That's a great thing to negotiate for. You'll never, nobody gets everything or gets it all the time, but these tips, every one of these tips increases your probability of having a more successful and happy career. Oh, one other example of a non-cash, non-therefore non-taxable thing you could negotiate for is to, indeed, as I mentioned earlier, to tweak your job responsibilities to suit your strengths. So, and, and that's, again, that's something that benefits the employer, benefits you, non-taxable, and is central to your feeling happy and su- unsuccessful on the job. Now, I want to turn to on-ramping. Yours, and by the way, you will probably never have a better negotiating position when they've offered you the position, but you haven't accepted it yet. Afterwards, they've kind of got you, and they know that inertia tends to make people stay put in the same, you know, in, in the job, and they won't leave. But when you've been offered the job, they vetted you, they put you through the three, four, five interviews, and you're number one. For the one time in this equation, the job seeker has the power. The employee has the power over the employer. Okay. Now I want to turn to on-ramping. 
My favorite tip around on-ramping is this. Again, if you haven't done it before, this is the time to renegotiate your job description to accentuate your strengths and skirt your weaknesses. And do that in your first meeting with your boss. Before, you know, your, your, your job description, your reputation is cast in jello when you start. And it gets, it's like concrete. It gets harder and harder after the first hour. And at that first meeting or that first day, at that meeting, also get clear on what's expected of you and how the boss likes you to interact. Does the boss like frequent questions in person? Does the person like uh, the boss like brief report-ins just by email? Also try, if you can, to have one-on-ones, you know, little meetings with key stakeholders, your, your co-workers, maybe um, oh, people, your supervisees. It's really a good idea to do that it's not just to establish rapport with them, but you get to learn the unspoken rules in that workplace and maybe about your boss. The next area of career tips that I want to talk about is growing, learning, growing, whatever you want to call it. Where possible, opt for what I call the Hey Joe School. That is asking a person in your office for help when you're stuck. That is deceptively simple. Not only is it free, but it provides just-in-time learning about what you're now caring to learn about and can apply it right now. And the Hey Joe School has another advantage of incorporating an understanding of your workplace because the person sitting next to you understands the culture of the place. Another, I think, excellent, if obvious, team is, it, it, um, uh, tip is to do simply a just-in-time Google search. I mean, it's free and it's so obvious we tend to take it for granted. But they, the Google search gives you the access to the wisdom of the world. And by the way, if you don't like the, you know, Google tracks everything you, you every query and then feeds that information to marketing people. If you don't like that, there's a, um, a very good search engine that doesn't do that called DuckDuckGo. So you might want to try that. Um, anyway, either way, the search gives you, you know, as I said, um, access to the wisdom of the world instantly for free. And Google search's algorithm tends to put the most valuable sites within the first few search results, usually the first one, two, or three. And don't forget, by the way, about videos. You know, part of Google is YouTube. We often learn better by seeing something in action, like how to run a meeting or conduct a performance review. Those YouTube videos are amazing how many YouTube videos there are and how instructive they can be. And you can, you know, curate them up front by looking at the ratio of likes to dislikes. If a video on running a meeting has got, you know, 100 likes and 5 dislikes, that's worth watching the few minutes. And most of them are short. Okay, now I want to turn to time management as in, in, in terms of, again, another of my favorite tips in this area of career is time management. Take lots of short breaks rather than a few long ones, let alone long vacations. If only because they say, you know, sitting is the new smoking. Get out of that chair for a few minutes every hour. If only to walk up and down the stairs a couple of times. That walking and deeper breathing is going to refresh you and help you concentrate. Now I want to talk, the the last thing is procrastination. I mean, I promised that I was going to focus here on kind of the under the radar, not obvious, but the baby step tip, which is the one I'm going to pitch here, has helped so many of my clients and me. Um, I can't resist. 
many of my clients have reduced their procrastination by when they're starting to resist that task they got to do, take a deep breath and do the first one second part of the task. Then another one second part of the task. Then another. Often just those few seconds of baby steps are enough to get the momentum going. And a similar point People get stuck at two places, basically, when they're procrastinating. One is when they're starting, and that one-second task thing can be helpful to you when you're starting. But also, people tend to get stuck when they reach a hard part. And they will sit, and they might stare at the computer for 20 minutes. And then, of course, that creates such a bad taste in their mouth because it's so painful to sit there for 20 minutes. They just give up, and their mindset now is task equals disgustingly frustrating. So when you reach a hard part, struggle for just one minute. Then decide whether, yeah, you need to keep struggling because you're making a little progress. Or you should try to get help. Or maybe you should come back to it later when you can view the problem with fresh eyes. Or maybe you can go forward, get the task done, even though you haven't conquered the roadblock. So those are some of my very favorite career tips. You're listening to Work with Marty Nemco, the very last Work with Marty Nemco here on KALW. Um, the station manager is replacing me as of next week with a series of shows from uh, uh, the graduates or the students, I don't know which, the trainees of the uh, KELW's Audio Academy. Now I want to share with you my most cited tips. These are not necessarily my favorite, but people tell me again and again whether just when I, I did a Google search of these various tips that I've given to see which ones get the most hits and, of course, which my clients have told me are most helpful and listeners to this radio show have told me is most helpful. And there's three tips that I want to cite that, are, that stand out above all the others that are in terms of being most cited. And one is on long-windedness, one is on immaturity, and one is on resilience. The one on long-windedness is to follow the traffic light rule. I'll bet you know someone who's long-winded, right? And how do you feel about him or her? Chances are it's not good. Well, consider the possibility that other people consider you long-winded. If you sense or even have been told that you're a Billy Blowhard or a Chatty Cathy, you could do worse than to follow what I call the traffic light rule. During your utterance's first 30 seconds, your light's green. During the second 30 seconds, the chances are increasing that the person would rather talk than for you to continue so your light's yellow. And at the one-minute mark, your light's red. Yeah, there is the rare time that you want to run a red light. For example, when you're telling a story that you're really confident is interesting to the person. But most times, when you go beyond a minute, you risk boring or frustrating the person and appearing egocentric. By the way... Um, I am clearly violating the traffic light rule here. Normally, um, I would take calls at, at this point, but for reasons beyond the, the worthy of discussion here, uh, I'm not able to do that here on this uh, my last show. Uh, so you're stuck with me for the whole hour, um, for better or perhaps worse. In any case, um, I used to, back to a little more detail about the traffic light rule, I used to think that I merely needed to teach my long-winded clients the traffic light rule. But it turns out, that at minimum, a lot of my clients need practice. They just don't have a good sense of when they've spoken for more than 30 or 60 seconds. So, if that sounds like you, practice with a timer, whether it's the one on your phone, a kitchen timer, whatever. But sometimes even that's not enough. Some people know they're long-winded, but don't seem to care a whole lot. I've had this kind of response from a number of people. 
Oh, well, talking something out helps me, and if they're a little bored by it, that's no big deal. Well, you can't force such a person to change. The best I've been able to do is to say, well, if you're willing to pay that price uh, of boring people or turning them off, that's okay, whatever. We don't always try to please. And usually my not arguing about it results in their monitoring themselves more carefully and enables them to reduce but not eliminate their blathering ways. The second of the three clearly most cited tips by people who have either heard me on this show or uh, my clients or uh, uh, readers of my Psychology Today articles um, is to beware of the Peter Pan syndrome. Yeah, this article, by the way, got to, has gotten 265,000 views on Psychology Today. So um, this tip is certainly widely perceived as of value. My average psychology today across my 1,480 articles there, I get maybe two or 3,000 per, and this one had 265,000, so clearly it helps people. So listen up. I've named it the Peter Pan Syndrome because as Peter Pan felt, some people just aren't yet ready to grow up. Even if they're 30 or older, they figure they still have a long time to be a responsible adult. They, they may invoke excuses for their inaction like fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of success. I want to rebel against the system. But sometimes, just sometimes, it's mere laziness. If you feel like maybe you are guilty of the uh, Peter Pan syndrome, um, you know, I, think I, I think I want to first talk about, you know, many people... I think maybe the most important thing I can say about this is if you are somebody who knows somebody or people who are afflicted with the Peter Pan syndrome, I would invite you to consider whether you should limit your involvement with such people. Not surprisingly, they can be frustrating. They can impede your life at work, out of work, even drag you into codependency, which can exist at work as well. And be especially vigilant if you're prone to rescuer fantasies. There are a lot of sufferers of the Peter Pan syndrome who only claim to want to grow up. It's kind of cushier to just hang out for some people. They don't recognize that productivity is core to the life well lived. Now, if (laughs) perchance it's you who think you might be suffering from the Peter Pan syndrome, it might or might not help to remind you that you have been given the gift of life at the risk of sounding like a minister or whatever. Um, That gift of life does, in my judgment, impose on you a responsibility to earn that gift of life. And that means supporting yourself. I mean, obviously, if you're very mentally disabled and or deeply physically disabled, that may limit your ability to do that. But in general, all things being equal, that gift of life you've been given imposes on you a responsibility to earn it. And that does mean supporting yourself and contributing, if only in a small way, to what I call your sphere of influence. And all, uh, something I've said on this show a zillion times, all ethical work is contributory. But especially, and this I haven't said on the radio much of it all, especially work is of contributory to society if you are having a ripple effect, like teachers, librarians, or even playing a small role in the development or the distribution of a quality product or a service. Somebody who I'm a big, I'm not a brand loyal person at all, but I am very loyal to Toyotas. They've been remarkably reliable. And somebody who's got even whatever small role in the 
manufacturing or distribution or marketing of Toyotas is making a difference. Okay. And finally, this is my third most cited tip, uh, maybe the most of the three, most cited of all. It's about resilience. And the tip is stop looking back. Take the next step forward. I want to flesh that out for you. I grew up knowing dozens of people who survived the Holocaust, including both of my parents. And oddly, and I grew up, yeah, anyway, uh, it's odd, but the ones who seemed both mentally healthiest and most productive rarely went to Holocaust remembrance events. They occasionally did. They didn't never talk about it. But they focused on moving forward. And my dad, the most, the single sentence in my entire life that anybody has ever told me that not only stays in my mind, but has done more to improve my life is, Martin, never look back. Always take the next step forward. Every one of us has had crap happen to us. We've had a spouse leave us. We've had a parent mistreat us. We've lost a job unfairly. We have been beset by a health issue that we have to face. But I think that unless you're really deeply debilitated, the wisest thing, in my judgment, that anybody could do is to follow my father's advice. I've, I've been, I've had the privilege, it is a privilege, of having been a career coach to 5,700 people, including some of the most successful people on planet Earth, as well as some real strugglers. And one of the key differentiators, in addition to intelligence and drive, which are you know, unquestionably critical, but one of the key differentiators between the successful ones and the unsuccessful ones is it's the successful ones. After quickly revisiting a trauma to identify any lessons that could be learned are far more likely to follow my father's advice. Stop looking back. Take the next step forward. So those are some of my most cited tips. Um, like I said, because this is my last show, this is Work with Marty Nemco here on KALW. Because it is my last show, I, my show is being replaced with a series of shows from KALW's Audio Academy. I am um, trying to pack the show uh, and I can't. I'm, I'm not allowed. I can't take uh, calls today for reasons that go beyond the scope of what I can discuss. Um, but I wanted to pack the show with as many uh, useful tips as I possibly can. Another, you know, and, and one of the ways I, I kind of picked it out, I looked at my 1,480 career uh, psychology today articles, and I picked the most watched ones, the most viewed ones. And this is another one that has like over 100,000 views. And uh, it's, it's called uh, 31 Inconvenient Career Truths. And so this is the essence of that. I, I'm going to give you these 30, 31 in, in short format, but hopefully long enough to be of useful. I need to stay up front that we career counselors and coaches, we are too often guilty of puffing our clients. We somehow feel it's wiser, or at least more comfortable, to err on the side of optimism. Now, no doubt that feels good to both the counselor and the client, at least in the short run. But I want to, especially here on my last show, based on my three-decade-long experience with 5,700 clients, I want to share what I believe to be 31 inconvenient career truths for the typical person. Um, 
one. And many of them are derived from my book, Careers for Dummies, but some are not. One, I'm going to skip some of these that I've already mentioned in the context of my previous tips. One was that choosing needn't be complicated, but I'll explain a little more. There is no need to take the Myers-Briggs type indicator. It is. I know it's very popular because it's kind of cool to be placed in one of those 16 categories. I'm an ENTP. I'm an IN, I am an INTJ. But it has shockingly poor predictive validity. And Another aspect of choosing a career that I haven't talked about that keeps things simple. You don't need to harangue people until they give you an informational interview. An informational interview is where you interview with somebody, not necessarily to get hired, but because you want to learn more about the field. When you, if you manage to get an informational interview or even two, those are one-offs. Those are what one or two anomalous people have to say. It's like if somebody comes to see me and asks me what it's like to be a career counselor, I'm going to say one thing. You might find another career counselor has something completely different. It's far more valid to what I said earlier, to spend an hour, just an hour, browsing the 250 careers in the, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, or 350, actually I think it's 340, careers in my book, Careers for Dummies, and then filter them, as I mentioned, based on whether they use your core attribute or two, words, people, if you're a STEM person, science, technology, engineering, and math, whether you're an entrepreneur person or an office detail person, just that, and supplementing that with a Google search, including, as I said, the videos on prospective careers, for example, counseling careers, and you have, with at no cost, and for and in a really quick amount of time, you have more wisely chosen a career than do most people. So that's the first of the 31 inconvenient career truths. Two, this is going to turn off a number of you, but I don't care. It is an absolute truth. This I'm sure of, really sure of. Following your passion, it's usually unwise. Most, I want to explain why. Most people are passionate about one or more of just a few things. Sports, nonprofit work, entertainment, environment, media, or fashion. If you pursue a job in those fields, it usually means enormous competition and in turn, low pay or no pay, you know, volunteer work and crappy job security. Unless you're unusually capable, unless you are driven and ideally you're connected, it is wise to make such passions your avocation, your hobby. Focus rather in terms of your career on what ends up being more central to most people's career happiness. That is, that the work is only moderately difficult, not too easy, not too hard, Goldilocksy. Job stability. Most people don't like having to jump from gig to gig. It feels good to have a stable workplace where you know the culture, you start to know the people, you're feeling you can, you can do a better job. It's, it's not fun every few months to be pounding the pavement again for most people. A short commute matters in this crazy traffic that we have in the Bay Area. And much as, you know, I can understand the, the, the press for public transit, it's hard unless you're living right near on a transit line. So the, the commutes are getting crazier, just crazy. What's also important is a good boss or co-wor- and coworkers. That matters. And reasonable compensation. So again, focus on what ends up being more important than following your passion. I know a hell of a lot of people who are staunch environmentalists and they're working for next to no money or no money 
and they're you know they don't get closer to a spotted owl than a sheaf of uh, of uh, billing statements. And they ain't happen. They got a long community that paid crap, and they are treated by crap sometimes because the employers knows that everybody's environmentalist here in the Bay Area. They can treat them like crap, and they're going to get somebody else the next minute for no money or f- crap money. So fine, donate your money, donate your time to the environment if that's your cause. But really, something you can hear the passion, obviously, in my voice, that I've seen more people happier by instead of following their passion as their career, focusing on what ends up being more central to most people's career contentment. That, as I said, the work is Goldilocksy, <laughs> moderately hard or moderately, you know, just moderately difficult. That the job has reasonable stability. That the commute is short. That you got a good boss, good coworkers, and the pay is reasonable. The third of the 31 inconvenient career truths, status is the enemy of contentment. Many people's career choices are driven more by status than even by passion. A lot of people choose to be doctors, lawyers, executives. And because status is somehow deemed important by so many people, the competition is great. And the education requirements have been ratcheted up. I remember it wasn't so long ago, when I started as a career counselor, to be a physical therapist, you only needed a bachelor's degree. But then when there was this large number of people, now you require a doctorate. Away from status. Yep. You know, think about that. All that effort, all that delayed gratification. And I have so many clients, my... My most frequent clients are unhappy doctors, lawyers, and executives. I know doctors particularly well. The stress they're under is unbelievable. And the paperwork is unbelievable. And patients who are either on one end non-compliant or, or know-it-alls come in waving sheaves of, of information about their condition, and they may end up knowing more about their condition because the doctor has to know about 10 zillion conditions. There's a hell of a lot of burnout in the doctor prof- in the medical profession. And drug abuse, because they have access to the opioid cabinet, for example. Yep. So it is often wise to pursue careers in which competition isn't so fierce. Maybe, and here are just a few under the... I don't like to break, bring up problems unless I offer solutions. There are some under-the-radar options that are extremely rewarding... When I wrote, I, I created U.S. News's uh, top top careers list, and at the very top of them that are not um, well known or not top of mind is optometry, program evaluation. Every government and nonprofit funded program, even for profit programs, need an evaluation or want an evaluation so they can get better. But nobody thinks about growing up saying, "I want to be a program evaluator when I grow up." Great career. Being a higher education student affairs administrator. That's all, you know, housing and extracurriculars. Great career. It's lovely to spend your, your life on a college campus. Unless you're a student. <laughs> anyway, um, or many jobs in government. They may not be statusy, but I've seen more people grateful for the fact that government is the last bastion of largely full-time benefited positions, nine to five, they're not expected to work nights, Great job security. 
And as I said last week on the show, people think, again, I'm always concerned about focusing on the under the radar. Everybody thinks of government job, they think of federal, they think of state, maybe city, county. But there are a ton of what I call interstitial government jobs for different commissions. There's parks commissions. There's water commissions. There is the uh, PUC, the, the, the Pacific Utilities Commission. Those don't come to mind so much for job seekers, and so the competition is less rigorous than, say, for a federal job. Okay. Um, and that, by the way, was, was going to be my next of the 31, which is that government jobs are underrated. Even if you believe government's inefficient, even if you believe government's glacial, even if you believe the government has too many employees who keep their job only because the government rarely fires people, many career seekers are going to find a government job maybe the best option, especially as we look ahead to a future in which the private sector is likely going to continue its trend to automating part-time and offshoring as much as it can. And the government's going to do less of that because that's politically unpalatable. Government pay, as I said, are good. There was a study that federal employees, the pay for equivalent work is higher on average in the federal government than in the private sector, which not used, used not to be the case. Plus, you know, many of the listeners of this show tend to be older. And people of color also may find it easier to get a government job than in the private sector. You know, I walked into the federal building recently and I saw a, let's just say, a very inclusive workforce. I don't find that as much in Silicon Valley, for example, for reasons that are perhaps too complicated to, uh, or are beyond the scope of this discussion. The fifth in my 31 Inconvenient Career Truths, and I should let our listeners know, you're listening to the last show, the very last show of Work with Marty Nemco here on KLW. Um, the show is being replaced by a, a series of shows that are produced by KLW's Audio Academy. But as you can tell, I'm trying, I'm particularly passionate, I, I'm always passionate, but I'm trying to, be, to cram as much value as I can here so that I can leave KLW and you, my dear listeners, after all these years with this, the best of Marty Nemco. So, okay. Another, the fifth of my 31 inconvenient career truths. Nonprofits are particularly likely to treat workers poorly. At least that's been the consensus among my clients. I mean, it's ironic because nonprofits often say, we care about workers, and yet they so liberally use volunteers and low pay workers and expect them to work long hours for the cause. So I can only say, you know, uh, while I'm particularly bullish on government jobs, I'm particularly not on nonprofit jobs on average. The sixth inconvenient career truth is, and this is a little airy fairy, touchy feely, as the German or Jewish phrase would be, Yiddish phrase would be, Luftmensch, a little head in the clouds. Um, happiness mainly comes from within. Of course, a National Geographic photographer is going to be more likely to love their career than an iron worker in a clanging factory, of course. But many people stew in cool careers, ostensibly cool careers like entertainment. Think about all the suicides and drug abuse in the entertainment industry. And there are plenty of people content in mundane fields. Focusing on a sexy or a particularly remunerative job is, as I've been saying, often not worth the price. Maybe you'd be foregoing a more ethical career. You know, if you're getting paid big money, very often it's because you're making big money. And if you're trying to make big money for the customer or whatever, 
there tends to be, certainly not always, a tendency to cut ethical corners or at least prioritize money over what are more important values. Or, you know, you may be foregoing, instead if you're focusing on a sexy or very remunerative job, you may be focusing, ignoring a creative career, which could be more to your liking. A writer, artist, musician, (laughs) radio talk show host. It is better to choose a career that offers those career keys to career contentment that I was talking about, about good coworkers, moderate workload, reasonable commute, you know, decent pay. And those are easier to find and succeed at in a not cool career because there is less competition. My seventh in the 31 inconvenient career truths and this is going to shock many of you, especially here where we're in adjacent to Silicon Valley. Getting into technology is risky. Yeah, software engineering is in demand, but it is not easy, far from easy, to get competent and stay competent. Employers often reject graduates, even of well-regarded coding boot camps, well, as saying, oh, they don't have enough skills. Those employers are often preferring to hire software engineers in the U.S. who are experienced and those in low-cost Asia because despite the language and cultural ca- challenges, they, that, that culture tends to value computerish stuff. Indeed, any, and another disadvantage of getting in technology, a risk, is that any job in which the work product can be sent over the Internet is, at least over the arc of your career, be ever more subject to being offshored. It may be wiser to focus on high-satisfaction careers that are what I call offshore-resistant, from network administrator to robot technician, from dentist to hair cutter to counselor. Counseling, being a counselor could theoretically be done very long distance, and three-quarters of my clients are phone and Skype now. But it's unlikely to be offshored because you have to have cultural competence about the the milieu in which you're living and in which your client is living. The eighth of the 31 inconvenient career truths is that changing careers is harder than many career counselors and the media imply. Unless you're brilliant and you're very prepossessing and you're well-connected, it is tough to convince an employer to hire you for a decent job over someone with significant experience. And that's what a career changer is. Right? You have no experience. You're changing careers. And these days, with employers so easily getting dozens, if not hundreds, of applicants merely by placing an online ad, the person who'd like to change careers has got really small chances. And that's true even if the would-be career changer follows the standard advice, tout your transferable skills you know, to employers and to people who might refer you. The most likely, and as never with human beings, we're not electrons, we're not perfectly predictable, the most likely prescription for managing career malaise is to make peace with your career choice. Not always, not if it's a terrible fit, but in general. And then tweak that career rather than change it. Change your particular employer. Adjust the job requirements. Get more skilled Keep growing little by little in both your skills and your attitude. As I said, happiness is often largely internal. And I'm not good at this. I'm going to be candid. You know, I have a tendency to be sad. That's just my personality. 
So when crap happens, I don't look at the bright side so easily. So I don't mean to be, you know, sound holier than now because I'm well aware that some of these things are easier said than done. The ninth of the 31 um, inconvenient career truths is also that run, and, and these are, tend to be negative because they are deliberately, um, these are inconvenient. They're not the good stuff. Running your own, and I'm, I'm focusing on this because, again, among all of my Psychology Today articles, this is among the most, most read. I think it's like 150,000 views. Running your own business is harder than the gurus would intimate. You see, if you're doing it legally, regulations are both complex and costly, and unless you've got deep pockets and you can afford to outsource a lot of tasks, you've got to be competent at many things. Sourcing, for these are just examples, sourcing products, sourcing customers, selling, government compliance, even maybe IT, and maybe even bookkeeping. You've also got to be a self-starter. No one is going to push you to work when you're self-employed, but the meter is always running. The cash is always burning. And then there's the opportunity cost of what you could have been earning had you been working for somebody else. So number nine was running your own business is harder than the gurus intimate. Now I want to turn to some inconvenient truths about landing the job. There simply are not enough good jobs. Good jobs. Forget about the fact the unemployment rate is 3.2%, the lows and the incomes and the, and the uh, pay is going up slowly. It is going up for the first time in a long time. Partly because of the protectionist policies of Trump, which are only transient and in the long run don't work. But there are not enough good jobs and there are going to be fewer. Do not buy the argument that technology has always created more jobs and so it will again. See, in our tech-centric age, it takes just one team to build a product, software typically. And then with a push of a button, millions of copies can be made, no people required. And today, when you are a job seeker, you are competing not just with people in your locale, but worldwide. In short, it's a war over limited jobs. Unless you're a star, you've got to fight like hell to survive, let alone to thrive. And that means... You've got to network diligently if you're good at networking. Or you've got to create a head-of-the-pack applications if you're not great at networking. By the way, what does a head-of-the-pack mean? It means applying only for jobs where you can really make the case that you're excellent for that job. And your resume and your LinkedIn profile and your cover letter have to make that clear. It also means, as I said earlier, adding a work sample. I called it a white paper typically, but it could be if you're in a sales, you know, sales or marketing field, you could write a business plan, a marketing plan, a sales plan. Sending that piece of collateral material can often help you then be uh, top of the stack. But there are not going to be enough good jobs. And I'm just going to briefly, I have done shows on this. There is nothing that bothers me more professionally, worries me, not bothers me, worries me, is what the hell are we going to do about the lack of good jobs. And I have a positive scenario and a negative scenario. The positive scenario is even if there can be fewer jobs, if we do a good enough job of education, people are going to learn to be find their happiness not from materialism, but from relationships, creative output, simpler lives. The pessimistic outcome is that so many people need work to feel worthy that there's going to be Great Depression, more drug use, and civil unrest, because when there ain't enough money, not about meaning of life, you know, certainly that matters too, but if you can't afford your medication and you've got to cut it in half so you can make it go longer, 
that's going to be the that's going to be the basis on which civil unrest occurs. So I worry, and I don't have great you know I have the, I have the positive scenario and the negative scenario, but I think you know I've had J- Jason Lanier, the big expert at, at Microsoft uh, uh, University or Institute, wherever it is, and I asked him what the solution is. He's got he's all over the place. He's got all these big awards. His thing is micropayments, that every time you write an Amazon review or you, you provide some data to Google, you get a micropayment, you get a mini penny. I don't see that that being sus- that's sustainable. It's, a, you know, it's like, yeah, if the Titanic is sinking, it might help to, to patch a small leak, but it's not going to stop the boat from sinking. But I digress. I'm in the middle of talking about my 31 inconvenient career truths. Um, I should last look. It's a good time for me to say. You're listening to work with Marty Nimco. The very last show... Um, for a variety of re- for uh, some reasons that go beyond what I can say, uh, unfortunately, I was not able to take calls today on the show, so you're stuck with me for the rest of the hour. Um, but I am trying to cram in this last show, on at least my last show on KLW, um, with as many useful and not obvious career ideas as possible. Uh, the next one is the degrees, and again, these are negative because these are the inconvenient career tools. So you know, we live in a haha pop, you know, pop psych. Everything is cool, upbeat, you know, world. But interestingly, the, my readers have said that they're more interested in reading these thirty-one inconvenient career truths than all the puffery stuff. So I thought that would be particularly worthy of you on my last show here. Um, degrees are overrated especially if you've had difficulty landing a good job. It's tempting to invest in a degree or another degree. And sometimes, yes, the learning and the networking are worth it, no question. But the cost in money and in time, which you could have otherwise been earning had, been not, had you not been in school, that's the, the, what's called the opportunity cost of the, of the time, that argues for doing some, just as I said earlier, some just-in-time learning for jobs you would love like reading key articles found through a Google search, taking highly rated courses locally or online through LinkedIn Learning, through Udemy, Udacity, Coursera, edX, and and I love the idea of getting a tutor or a mentor. We often learn best one-on-one. I want to talk briefly about my own experience with that. When I came to California, I was amazed that roses, these beautiful romantic flowers, only... They bloomed like nine months of the year here. I came from New York where they bloomed two months a year. But they, roses suffered from a problem. They were disease-prone. They got black spot, they got mildew, they got rust. So I wasn't, after I already had one PhD, I wasn't going to go back for another one, even though I know most, most rose breeders have a PhD in botany. I never took a botany course in my life. But I started to read. And I read everything about disease resistance in roses and breeding for disease resistance in roses. And then I visited the world's best and spoke on the phone to the world's best rose breeders, and they were happy to talk with me because I had learned enough on my own. And then I started doing it and calling them with questions. And I now get a five-figure royalty check every year from my roses. So I'm not, it's not for everybody. But I'm just saying, before you do the visceral, natural thing, which is to you're going to you know, go get another degree, consider instead of state you, let alone private you, consider what I call you, you, Y-O-U-U, a combination of mentors, reading, YouTube videos, individual courses, visiting people on site, attending conferences. Some combination of that is often, it's also cheap or free, and more practical and on target. 
I'm not opposed. I, I love liberal learning. I am now rereading books that I read in high school and college with a new maturity that are simply liberal arts. I just read, I'm reading Huckleberry Finn again, Winesburg, Ohio. And I love the learning simply from, for learning's sake about life's universals. But this show is about career. And so from that perspective, I invite you to consider attending UU. Specifically, item number 12 is that a Ph.D. is an overrated degree. Universities' websites may cite an, quote, expected time to completion of four to five years, but the average time is very different than the expected time. It's usually six to ten years, depending on the school, depending on the field. And because a Ph.D. is prestigious, there is an oversupply of Ph.D.s. My career's most vivid memory is when I was invited to give a session on career, of career advice for neuroscience PhDs at the Conference for the Society of Neuroscience. And my session was just a concurrent one. It wasn't, it wasn't a keynote or anything. So I expected maybe 25 people would show up. I had 500. And afterwards, 300 people, roughly, lined up to ask me for help. And nearly all of them, despite a neuroscience PhD, we're having trouble landing a good job. So don't think that the Ph.D. is necessarily going to be a guarantor of good employment. Number 13. We're not going to get to all 31. We've only got about uh, nine and a half minutes left. So resumes. I'm, I have to skip. I'm going to see. I'm going to skip. This is an important one. Okay. Resumes that are written by a resume writer are both unethical and ineffective. You see, employers use resumes not just as a recitation of work history, but as an index of candidates' ability to write, to reason, to organize. And as a result, many employers review, they view resumes that are written by a resume writer as negatively as they would as a college admissions officer, <clears throat> excuse me, would view an application essay that was written by a parent or a hired gun. Employers review hundreds of resumes, and so they've got a sense of which ones have been written by the applicant and which by a pro. You know, dynamic self-starter, seeks opportunity in a growing company, uh, team player, all that, you know, drove this, spearheaded that, made $96 billion in profit for the company. And even if they can't, if an employer doesn't discern that it was written by a resume writer, when they interview a candidate, if there is a big difference between the language and thinking skills in the resume and what, they, what the interviewee is like in the, interviewee, in the interview, that candidate is usually rejected. But of course, you know, in these days, we don't, very rarely will employers give the real reason. They didn't say, they won't say, oh, you had somebody write your resume for you. They're more likely to say, oh, we decided to go in a different direction. <laughs> I have asked resume writers, if you feel it's ethical to write someone's resume, how come you don't sign it written by Jane Jones, resume writer? Not one resume writer has ever offered an even marginally reasonable answer. Okay, next tip. Be realistic. You start a job search with a full tank of gas, emotional gas, and every rejection, every no response, which is the typical response these days, burns some of that emotional gas. And you don't want to run out of gas before you land a job. Google, which is, seems like every job seeker's dream place, they get, catch this, 4,000 resumes every week. 
and they hire one out of a thousand from that pool, and it's a strong pool. So unless you're a star or you hold a rare in-demand skill set and you have a strong in, it is a better use of that emotional gas because you don't want to run out of gas before you land a job. It's better to focus on less designer label employers. Next. Networking is not for everyone. Dawn McGree Graham, who wrote a book called Switchers, she wrote, quote, For switchers, networking is absolutely necessary, end quote. But most people who buy a career guide or hire a career counselor or look for career advice, they've usually tried networking and it hasn't worked. They may also have worked to improve their networking and still they don't have that somehow that je ne sais quoi, the special something to get someone who's got clout to go to bat for them so strongly that it yields a decent job in a new function or a new field. So if those kind of people, those job seekers, follow the standard advice to network, 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 too many of them are going to end up joining the millions of un- and underemployed people who have given up or uh, given up looking for decent paying work, who, by the way, are not counted in the government-reported unemployment rate. For poor networkers, answering ads is underrated. For them, a quality application is going to trump additional networking. Let's see, again, in the interest of time, I want to make sure that I give you some of the most important of these. These, again, these are the um, inconvenient career truths, so they tend to be uh, uh, on the negative side. I want to make sure that I give you the ones that are most important. Uh, let's talk about this. Yes, this is, an, this is a really pretty central one. We are less malleable than many counselors tell us. It is usually wise to accept your basic self and limit your change efforts to finding a well-suited job, tweaking it to fit, and making incremental changes in your skill set. The New York Times had a review of the literature on intelligence by Harvard's David Reich, and that underscored the limitations of our malleability. That article says that the criticality of intelligence is central, it's just central, Unfortunately, because so many career counselors and guides and media self-help gurus, they want to give people hope for great improvement. Like that book, Switchers, that I mentioned, it tries to persuade people that major change is possible, and they'll, they'll cite these pop-psych premises like power poses, which has been debunked, and growth mindset, grit, when even the, when the solid unbiased research, not done by the founders of those ideas, but by independent researchers, has called their potency into serious question. It is generally wise to accept your core strengths and your weaknesses, place yourself appropriately, and then fine-tune to maximize your career satisfaction. I want to say this, for example. I, um, I used to be a school psychologist way back when, and I found simply that was not my gift. I was not meant to work with special needs people. I respect people who do. That wasn't who I was. And it was very important for me to accept that, accept that weakness and not try to fix all weaknesses. I try to build on my strengths, which is thinking on my feet. And I, I've been much happier with my current client base, which is, you know, not special needs people. What else do I want to say here in limited time? 
we are, especially today, we're told to not be elitist. But we all grow, if we're really honest, instead of just saying, don't be elitist, if we think, breathe, and think for a moment, we all grow from being with people who are moderately better than we are, brighter, more skilled, better attitude. So when you've got a choice, opt to be with, and this is a dirty word these days, opt to be with superior people. Even if that makes you feel insecure, the benefit is usually worth it. Next, manage your procrastination with a single decision, not a rationalization. Let me explain that. Procrastination, the roots of procrastination, are not that often really the result of fear of failure and rejection. That's what psychologists and a lot of counselors would have us believe. Often, at least in my experience with my 5,700 clients, more foundational to procrastination is a person's unconscious insistence on avoiding pain combined with a belief that productivity just isn't worth the pain, even if it promises long-term gain. Next. And again, these are the inconvenient truths, so they tend to be negative, but they were so widely read by my, my Psychology Today readers that I felt that in this, my last show, I needed to share those. Quick mine your past. Let me explain that. Whatever lessons you can mine from reviewing your past dark's event, you know, like I said, whether it be a loss of a spouse or a... Uh, uh, unfair treatment by a boss, whatever, getting fired. You can usually learn any lessons from just a bit of, say, journaling or thinking or talking with a friend. From that point, it is wiser to focus on suppressing. Yes, suppressing. I know the psychologists don't like that. But suppressing those sad experiences. And then ever, as my dad said, stop looking back, Martin. Always take the next step forward. And I think that's probably as good a place as any to uh, to end this last show of work with Marty Nemco. As I said, starting next week, uh, the show will be replaced by uh, uh, shows from KELW's Audio Academy. Um, it has been a privilege for now 30 years to have uh, had these airwaves and feel like potentially I'm helping you, and I'm grateful for all the letters and the emails and phone calls, and etc. It has enriched my life enormously. And so uh, I just want to say I wish you uh, contentment. Happiness may be too much to ask for, but I wish you contentment in your career and your life. And uh, um, as I'll end this show like I ended every show for the last 30 years. I'm Marty Nemco, and uh, reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. Marty Nimco welcomes your emails. His email address is mnimco at comcast.net. That's m-n-e-m-k-o at comcast.net. 